You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So we are looking today at the sacraments. You'll remember that the catechism led us into this discussion of nobody can keep the the law of God. And because of that, we're worthy and deserving of his wrath and curse. And then it asks the question, how do we escape the wrath and curse of God due to us by reason of the transgression of the law? And the answer given is threefold. It requires of us repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption. So we've looked at faith, we've looked at repentance, we've looked at the outward means, and it's especially the word, sacraments, and prayer which God uses. So we've looked at the word, now we're going to look at the sacraments in general, and then focus in on the baptism and the Lord's Supper in particular. So the efficacy, 91. How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? The sacraments become effectual means or effective means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in him that does administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in them that by faith receive them. So it's dealing with some historical errors here, as we'll look at, but right here it tells us that ultimately the efficacy of the sacraments resides in God alone. That word sacrament, as we've looked at before, signifies a solemn oath, one that was taken by soldiers who would swear their allegiance to a king or a general. Um, The word itself, you can't find it in Scripture, but I think it's a good word, just like other words that you can't find in Scripture that are good words, like Trinity, things like that. But the things signified by that word sacrament certainly can be found in Scripture, as we'll see. In the sacrament, what God does is pledge himself to us by confirming the covenant through them. So he is a faithful covenant-keeping God. He has bound himself to the promises he's made in his covenant. And when we see and participate in the sacrament, God is confirming to us his oath. He received the sign of circumcision, that's Abraham, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So there we see that the sign of circumcision was considered a seal. It's an authoritative declaration of God himself as king that this is true. It authenticates the promise. It confirms the pledge. So when we talk about a sacrament being a solemn oath, on one hand, it's from God toward us in that he pledges himself. On the other hand, God's people pledge themselves to God and affirm allegiance to him. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that we, too, might walk in newness of life. 
In the sacraments, we are pledging ourselves to be holy in only the Lord's. So baptism is the initiation into that engagement. You are to be holy in only the Lord. You're set apart. And then every week when we partake of that supper, we are solemnly vowing an oath to the Lord to be only and holy His and to walk in newness of life. And so when we talk about a means of salvation, it's any instrument appointed by God as a means to convey grace and salvation. God's Word is the means that He employs to beget faith and to strengthen it and to cultivate it. And the sacraments are the means used to confirm faith. So there was a debate in New England particularly as to whether or not the sacraments are converting ordinances. Solomon Stoddard was the uh, grandfather of Jonathan Edwards, and his take was that he would invite everybody in the community to become members, communicate members of the church, in hopes that the sacrament would convert them. Well, they're not converting ordinances. The word is a converting ordinance. That's what God uses to change the heart, to enlighten the mind. But the sacraments are confirmation. They're confirming ordinances. So a means of salvation is any instrument appointed by God to convey grace. And that's what it means here. The sacraments are means of salvation to convey grace, to confirm the promise. Any comments on the introductory stuff? Questions? No? Okay. Do they fully attain the purpose for which they're appointed? Well, the catechism answer deals with two distinct errors, as I mentioned. On the one hand, there are those who attach the meaning and value of the sacrament to the sign, the whole meaning. Others attach it to the spiritual side so that the sign is simply symbolic. It's really unnecessary, insignificant, somewhat irrelevant, kind of a nice ceremony, but it's not really that important. We'll look at those in a minute. But the true understanding, as we understand it, is that the sensible sign is so bound to the spiritual grace that it is more than a mere arbitrary sign. It's not just a ceremony. The supper is not just to remember Jesus, right? A memorial view. There's something actually happening there that is spiritually significant. It's what we call the spiritual presence of Christ, When you partake of that supper in faith, you are actually communing with the exalted Christ because his spirit is taking those simple elements and enabling you by faith to enjoy this fellowship with Christ. It's a spiritual, it's a mystical thing. We don't quite understand it, not that we're supposed to, but the Bible teaches it, so we believe it. It's what we call the spiritual presence. And this was the difference in the Reformation. You know, Luther kind of went too far into saying the body and blood of Christ are in, with, and under the elements. He's there. This is my body. And Zwingli, or at least what's attributed to him, now I'm, I'm sort of convinced that Zwingli, near the end of his life, came around to the spiritual presence view. But anyway, he's attributed to saying this is just a memorial. It's just a ceremony. There's nothing else happening here. We're just remembering what Jesus did. Calvin came along and said it's right in the middle. No, it's not his body and blood. They're in heaven. 
it's localized. You can't attribute divine qualities to a human body. His body is not ubiquitous, everywhere present. But Jesus is present in the person and power of his spirit, enabling us to enjoy him. That's the spiritual presence. It's a divinely appointed instrument by means of which grace is conveyed by the Spirit, and grace is not entirely dependent upon the sign. You don't have to have the sacrament to get grace. But the sign helps the growth of grace in the soul. So this helps cultivate grace in your life. It helps you to grow into maturity. That's the importance of the sacraments. If you claim to be a Christian and you refuse baptism, you're denying, you're disobeying the command of God, but you're also denying yourself an important means of grace. If you claim to be a Christian and you refuse the Lord's Supper, you're denying yourself an important means of spiritual growth. Now, if you're on a, I know the desert island argument. Of course, you're on a desert island. You can't get baptized. You can still be saved, of course. But the exception proves the rule. The rule is that God gives these means for us to grow. And then Hebrews 5, it says, some of you ought to be teachers, and you still need to be taught the elementary principles of the faith. And I wonder, I just wonder sometimes if they had neglected not only the meeting of themselves together, but the sacraments of the Lord. There is what we call a sacramental union. We've discussed this a little bit before. The sacramental union between the sensible sign the bread and cup, and the spiritual grace thereby signified fellowship with Christ. There is what we call a sacramental union between them. God appointed a spiritual bond between the sign and grace on the one hand, so that the name, or sign and grace, and so that the names and the effects of the one can be applied to the other. Let me give an example. Baptism can mean water baptism, the outward sign, Or the Spirit's baptism, the inward grace. When you use that word baptism, baptism now saves you. What? Peter, are you telling me that the water that we sprinkle on somebody saves them? No, not as a removal of dirt, not the water itself, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. When your conscience is cleansed by the blood of Christ and you're engrafted into Christ... You're united to him by faith. That saves you. And that's what baptism signifies. So the scripture is comfortable using the word baptism to signify the actual grace. Do you see what we're saying here? The supper may mean the bread and the cup, the meal, or partaking of Christ, the inward grace. Let me give you an example. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Well, the Passover lamb was the visible, tangible means of the sacrament. But it's called, Christ himself is called the Passover lamb. So the sacrament, the element itself, is being applied to Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. This is my body, which is for you. The idea is that this bread and cup is representing the body. Of Christ. This is a difficult thing to understand. And I don't know if this is clear, any more clear to you, but the sacramental union is important as we go through Scripture and see these words used sometimes like this. How can they say baptism saves you? 
Well, it's because there's this union between the sign and the grace. And Scripture can use the language to refer to either. John? No, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there has been some errors throughout church history and some of the early fathers, you're right, even Augustine himself, perhaps the greatest theologian in the Christian church, fell into the error subtly of baptismal regeneration. So it, it's a very difficult thing, and I think that's a razor's edge that we navigate in this area, but we have to recognize okay, well, Scripture is going to use these terms this way. What, what does it mean by that? And it is the sacramental union that, that the sign and the grace, they're tightly bound in the economy of God. And we have to recognize as well, as the Catechism points out, that God himself is the only one that can make them effectual. So only God the Spirit can make the sign actually signify the grace that it's exhibiting. Any, anybody else? Before we move on, Rob, is that a hand? A grown up? Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think, well, we're all growing in our knowledge of the sacraments. So let's say that you're a grown up, 30 years old, and you're off the streets and you're converted and you have some initial training in the faith, you're learning. Um, I'm sure that you're not, not going to understand all of it. But you understand one thing. I believe in Jesus and God commands me to get baptized. Okay, I'll do it. I didn't know anything when I was converted. I was 23. I guess I was an adult. Didn't feel like an adult, but I was. <laughs> and I didn't know anything. So... It took me a long time to catch up and learn, and uh, there's so many things that I didn't know, but I recognized, okay, these people in this building, they're telling me that God wants me to do this, so I'll do it. And I think that shows a childlike faith. You know, we were talking about that earlier. A child will do what a child is told to do. Yeah. Carolyn? We're coming to that. Great question. Important question. The Donatist controversy. Yes. Was there another? Jonathan? I was going to say uh, this union of, of word and sacrament in the way that God works with people and reveals himself is not something a lot of us grew up with. But then once you see it, I start to see it everywhere, like in the garden with the tree, God's word, and then the tree is the, the visible word. Yeah. Noah and the ark, the preaching of Noah, of Christ through Noah, and then word being the ark in a sense it seems like there's all these ways that God speaks his word and it gives a visible outworking of that or a sacramental type of 
Yeah, he, he, uh, he's so gracious in giving us these visible signs. I wouldn't call them sacramental, <clears throat> all of them, but you're right. I mean, he is so great. He made us to be material people, right? We're physical beings, and he made us that way. So he does give us these tangible, visible signs of his grace and glory, and it is wonderful. Um, 91 raises the question of the way they become effectual means. In what manner is the grace signified in sacraments actually conveyed? Now, we're going to look at two or three negative things that it talks about, and then the positive. So this gets to Carolyn's question in a minute. Negatively, the efficacy does not depend upon the sacraments themselves. There's nothing inherent in a sacrament that conveys grace. They may be applied and received without conveying grace. And this is clear. Simon, repent of your wickedness. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Here's a man who had been baptized, right? That did not convey the grace that was signified. So Simon could take the sacrament of baptism and do so as a hypocrite, which apparently was the case. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So there we have an example of somebody partaking of the Lord's Supper, not in faith, and it doesn't convey grace, it does the very opposite. It conveys wrath. The sacraments do not have any power or efficacy in themselves to convey grace or salvation. Roman Catholic teaching, of course, asserts that they work ex opere operato, translated from the work performed, just by virtue of the fact that this sacrament has been administered properly, grace. Doesn't matter who you are or the state of your heart, it's conveyed. As instruments of God, these religious rites convey grace whenever administered properly. Now, that's important because the Catholic Church will maintain that it has to be done properly. For that, I guess we could be thankful. But they claim its efficacy has nothing to do with the merits either of the priest or the recipient. So you have the example of, I mean, the extreme example of the the hitman who goes into the church after he's taking care of his business, and he takes the sacrament, you know, to convey grace, give him grace for cleansing of whatever he just got done doing. In their view, the sacraments are immediate causes of grace. The church is the depository of grace, and it dispenses it as it sees fit. So God just kind of pours grace into the church, and the church pours grace into people. It's very mechanical, But sacraments have no more efficacy to convey grace than the rainbow has to stop a flood. You remember the rainbow was the sign that God was not going to flood the earth again? Well, the sign doesn't stop the flood. God stops the flood. But here's the sign of that reality. Any questions on this negative element? Rob? Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. What would you say if someone said that 
Romans 1. His wrath is being displayed every single day. I've never heard that. Yeah, I've never heard someone claim that. I mean, largely because of Romans 1, you know, it's so plain. Um, Everything that we endure in this life that is adverse is an outgrowth of God's punishment on sin. So um, all the ills that we suffer in our bodies and our names and our relationships and our work and all that, death itself, I mean, it's an expression of God's wrath. The wonderful thing as a Christian, redemption transforms the expressions of wrath into elements of good so that we have that promise, you know, even the sufferings, which in and of itself, suffering is not good. But God uses it for a good purpose for the Christian. You were going to follow up. Were you going to follow up on that, Rob? Okay, yeah. Allison? Yes. Discerning the body is twofold. One, you have to discern what these elements mean. You're looking at the table and you discern that bread represents his body and that cup represents his blood. This is a commemoration of the sacrifice of Christ. And we're in this together. We are the body of Christ, gathered, which is why private communion is is unlawful. You do it in the context of the gathered worshiping community. So you discern the body on the table, and you discern the body in the sanctuary, and you give glory to God. If you can't discern that, then you ought not to be taking the supper. Eric? Yes, yes, yes. We diligently, diligently observe the sacramental elements and the actions. We heedfully discern the Lord's body. We affectionately meditate upon his death and his sufferings. Um, we judge ourselves, sorrowing for our sins. We take out of the truth and the measure of our faith, our repentance. Have I repented of all known sin? There are sins I don't know about. I'm not gonna, I can't repent of those. But have I sincerely tried to repent of all known sin? Or am I coming to this table harboring something that I won't give up? You know, all of that. Um, it's, it's not just a passive recipient, you know. We are actively trying to meditate upon the death and resurrection of Christ and what he's done for us. That's a great question. There's a whole question devoted to that in the larger catechism. So it's, they'll ask in the catechism, what do you do beforehand to prepare for it? What do you do during the Lord's Supper? What do you do afterwards? You know, many of us don't think about that. Have I found any benefit? And if not, well, did I prepare for it okay? How did I conduct myself during it? And if I find that I can, I'm in good conscience with those things and I'm to wait upon God for the fruit of it in due time. But if I have failed in either preparing for it or in taking it, then I have to be humbled and to attend upon it afterwards with more care and diligence, you know. So it's a very great question. But I don't want to go so far and analyze it so in detail that we become superstitious. And that's what happened with our Scottish brethren. Once a quarter, they would have the Lord's Supper. 
And they would have, uh, what do they call them? Seasons, communion seasons or something like that, where the whole week was spent in preparation for this sacrament. Well, that's way overboard. This is an ordinance that God gives every single week. John? Okay. Negatively, efficacy does not depend on the piety of the minister. Who has Allison? No, this is is Carolyn. A minister should be sincere as a believer with a credible profession of faith. He must be duly appointed by the church to administer the sacraments. No one but a minister should minister the sacraments, the mysteries of God. But the grace conveyed and received is not based upon his personal piety. I don't want to... It has nothing to do with his heart. It has everything to do with God giving the authority to the church, and here's the agent of the church administering it properly in the name of Christ with the help of his spirit, and that's how God blesses. It has nothing to do with his piety. The Donatists, historically, and this is in the early church or shortly thereafter, believed that the validity of the sacraments depends upon the worthiness of the minister. So that if you're baptized by someone who turns out to be an apostate, you might think to yourself, oh, it's invalid. I had a hypocrite baptize me into the church. They said that a minister had to be almost faultless for his ministry to be effective and the sacraments to be valid. So those who recanted the faith during the Diocletianic persecutions were viewed as hypocritical, false, invalid. You can imagine the confusion that that brought into the church. Whole hosts of people were baptized by men who, for one reason or another, being threatened with their life, recanted the faith and then came back later. So negatively, it doesn't depend on the piety of the minister. It depends on the fact that he is ordained lawfully by the church, a true church, who has the authority to dispense the sacraments. Any questions on the piety question? Dan? Oh, Jesus Revolution. <clears throat> right. 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 Invalid. That's invalid. When I when I was part of a charismatic church, <clears throat> I'm almost embarrassed to say this. I didn't know anything now, okay? My Sunday school teacher, we were talking about baptism, and I said, hey, I want that to be done for me. He said, come on over to my house. We go to his house, and he baptized me in his bathtub. He wasn't even a minister. So, I mean, in the bathtub, by ourselves, non-minister, I mean, the whole thing was wrong, you know. It was a small bathtub. So anybody who's done that wrong, believe me, you're in good company, hopefully. Um, But it's invalid because it's not a lawful minister by the authorized church. 
So uh, in that sense, the Donatists, if they were talking about validity in terms of his office, we'd agree, but not in terms of his piety. Yeah. So Jesus' revolution, that shouldn't have been done. The intent, we understand. You know, a whole host of young people coming to Jesus, you get it. It's not right. They need to be trained properly, but we applaud their zeal. Uh, They were hoping to do the right thing. Yeah, Sue? Yes. Absolutely. The, the invalids, the, the housebound. So what we would do, for example, with the supper, we've done this with Jeff Kaler, for example. Uh, two or three elders and myself and Jason, we went down there, we'd have a service in his living room. And that's the church. That's the bare bones minimum of the church. When you have a pastor and the elders together, there's a quorum. So that the church is present, you have the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacrament. We'd sing and we'd confess the faith together. You know, there's like six of us in his living room. And so we would take him to supper. No. Nope. Has to be a minister of the gospel. Because the difference between teaching elders and ruling elders is the only difference is that the teaching elder has the added responsibility and privilege of administering the sacraments and the word, teaching the word. So ruling elders have equal authority, but they cannot administer the sacraments. Yes, Caleb? That's a clarifying question. Um, part of the Teach their pastors how to do things, so, so they would uh, hire somebody to be a youth pastor. Does he still have the authority to, uh, to baptize? You know, he's not really learning. Well, it's not learning. It's it's the ordination process. He's if it's not he's not ordained, he shouldn't do it. Okay. Should not do it. Only so in, there's, there's whole denominations that don't do ordination. Right. Yeah. So so are all of those uh, wrong? Yeah. Okay. It's a simple question, simple answer, simple question, yeah. Uh, Jim? So in a church membership situation, are some of the questions that the elder would get into would be, well, tell me about your professional faith, but also tell me about your baptism. Right. I mean, should that be the dual element here? Yes. So we would want to know if they've been baptized by a lawful authority in the appropriate way. And... We'll get into that probably more. I don't know if it'll be me or Jason, but we'll get into that more when we talk about baptism in particular. You know, was your baptism lawful? And this church takes the position, at least in terms of Roman Catholic baptism, at least, that it was not lawful because the Roman Catholic Church, we believe, is not a true church. And so a true church, a false church, does not have the authority delegated by Christ to administer the sacraments. So whatever they did was not lawful. Now, there are other PCA churches who disagree. I want you to know that. We're kind of in the minority report here. Our church is in the minority on that question. But it gives you an illustration of, yeah, we have to determine the baptism. Yeah. Don't need to know that. 
You don't have to know that. As long as it's a true church and it was a lawful baptism. I mean, think of it. All of us, no, none of us would be sure if it depended upon the piety of the... You don't know if I'm a true Christian. I mean, you can see my life and kind of make a conclusion, but you don't know. And if I'm giving you the supper and I'm an apostate, what is that going to tell you about yourself? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm... No, it's the lawful church with a lawfully ordained minister administering it in a proper biblical way. And that's what's at issue in the sacrament. Rob? Well... I mean, it's a good question, but if you're, if you're wanting to join a church or be a member of a church, it's probably a question you've dealt with, I would think. Yeah, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll check, like if you say it's, <clears throat> you know, Raising Hands Church down the street, we'll, we'll look at Raising Hand Church on the internet. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. Negatively, the efficacy doesn't depend upon the intention of the person who administers it. Catholicism teaches that the priest, by his intention, can give degree and direction to the grace conveyed. If he really means it, <laughs> then it's real grace, a lot of grace. In effect, that puts the whole control of grace in the hand of the priest. The recipient merely submits to the priest and receives the sensible sign of grace. Faith or no faith makes no difference. See, there's a mechanical view at work here. And the Bible clearly teaches that faith is essential. Laura? Uh, well, early church, you know, with Timothy, for example, Paul said, exercise the gift that's been given to you by the laying on of hands of the presbytery. He was ordained. And then Paul says, and I think 1 Corinthians 4.1, you are to regard us as stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is the one who faithfully dispenses his master's food in the household. And so these mysteries, as we'll see, it was a word given to the sacraments. We're stewards of the mysteries, right? This is a mysterious thing. What's going on here? We're having fellowship with the Lord? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, was, he was the Old Testament prophet. He was ordained, but not in the same way. He was anointed as a prophet. Yeah. But ordination is that authoritative declaration and, and setting apart of a man for office. So when Mark was ordained... He came up front, we laid our hands on him, and there is the church at the command of Christ, symbolically signifying that he has been given the authority to rule in the church. And that's significant. Before that time, he cannot rule. After that time, he can rule as a servant, not as a tyrant. So, he is at the mercy and intention of the priest, but grace may be received from Christ through the agency of one who has been duly called and ordained. It's from Christ. Positively, now those are the negative things. Positively, the efficacy depends upon Jesus and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and this is one thing that we often forget. It's not just the working of the Holy Spirit. It is the blessing and the presence of Christ 
he blesses this ordinance. Without that blessing, it's nothing. So it's the blessing of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. He made that promise. He blesses. The working of the Spirit, Jesus conveys life and virtue in one spirit. We were all baptized into one body, and we are made to drink of one spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So, it is the Lord God who makes these things that we do effective in conveying grace. He works, by, he works by the sacraments effectually only in those who receive them by faith. Only in those who apply Christ and his benefits as represented and signified. So people may participate in the gospel ordinances and sacraments and still perish in their sins. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate of the same spiritual food, and all drank of the same spiritual rock from. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, he says, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They partook. Sue? In that situation, the infant is receiving the sign of the covenant because of the faith of the parent or parents. And so here we have, for example, Abraham, right? He is the father of the faithful. And this, the whole idea of infant baptism rests upon two pillars. The first pillar is that baptism and, and circumcision are identified. <clears throat> That what circumcision was to the Old Testament saints, baptism is to the New Testament saints. Abraham, you believe you are to be circumcised and your children. You circumcise your eight-day-old sons. And that identification between circumcision and baptism is clear in Scripture. Paul makes that linkage. The second one, second pillar, is that there is this... What's the word I want to use? There is the same covenant, the same substance of the covenant of grace throughout. So the Old Testament and the New Testament show the same covenant of grace, and the people of God are one. God dealt with them a little bit differently, but they're saved by faith in Christ. We're saved by faith in Christ. So in this covenant... If God would accept the infants of believers in the Old Testament way of doing things, and the New Testament covenant is far more inclusive, far better, all nations, the sign given to men and women, wouldn't it be strange that God would exclude from this more inclusive covenant those who were included under the Old It would be very strange. And somebody says, well, there's nothing in the New Testament that specifies that they're to be baptized. Well, that's an argument for in my book because it's assumed. We've done it for thousands of years. We've included the infants of believers in the covenant for thousands of years. And if they were going to be excluded from this covenant of grace, you would think that God would say, okay, now it's time for you to keep them out. No, no. It was assumed. It was assumed that we're going to have elders, just like in the Old Testament, elders in every church. It's assumed that we're going to have infants, just like in the Old Testament, so in the New Testament church. 
And I think based upon the profession of faith of the parents, these children are holy, 1 Corinthians 7. I'm stealing the thunder of somebody who's talking about baptism coming up, but... Yeah, so the efficacy of baptism is not contingent on the moment of application. That's a fancy way of saying this. You're baptized as an infant, you become 15 years old, you embrace the faith as your own. That baptism is efficacious by faith. It took 15 years, but it's efficacious. God uses it. You're set apart. Rob? As far as I know, <laughs> I don't know if they dealt with the whole transgender thing back then, but yeah, as far as I know, that's it. In that patriarchal society, the women were represented largely by the men, their fathers and husbands. They were as, as important and as included as anybody. It's just the sign was carried by the males. The organ, of re- the organ of generation was cleansed. The corruption was cut off. It symbolized engrafting into Christ. But that's the beauty of the new covenant, isn't it? No longer do we have a bloody sacrament. The blood has been shed. Now we have a watery sacrament. And everybody can have the sign. It's more inclusive. So again, why would God exclude an important part of the Old, Cust- Old Testament grouping? from this more inclusive covenant. It's the principle of election. No, it's not fair. Of course not. God is sovereign. He can choose whomever he wants. And that's what he did throughout history. He chose Abraham. He chose Noah. He chose Abel. Cain didn't like it. Yeah, it's representative, I think. And, and in terms of the church and the home, particularly the men, they're not superior, but they're representative, right? And so it's always been that way. That's the way God made it. Um, That doesn't mean that somebody else is less important. It just simply means that God uses the male as the representative. But even in this covenant, it's wonderful because the baptismal sign can be applied to anyone, which is great. Oh, Jim? Yeah. Matthew 18. Yeah. Two or three are gathered together. Christ is there. Yeah. Why do we need an ordained person in that particular instance to give sacraments? Because Christ commands that his representatives dispense with his mysteries. 1 Corinthians 4.1. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is somebody who's appointed by the king to dispense food to the household, to open the door, to let people in. The keys of the kingdom, First Corinthians, or no, Matthew 16. To whom did Christ give the keys of the kingdom? Which means those whom you can let in and those who you shut out. Those keys are not given to everybody indiscriminately. Those keys are given to the officers of Christ's church. So he gave them to the apostles, right? And the apostles represent the church, the official church. 
and only the officers of the church and the rulers of the church and particularly the ministers of the church can exercise those keys. That's why you can't excommunicate yourself. I feel bad this week. I've struggled with sin all week long. I've failed the Lord. I feel terrible. My conscience is accusing me. I'm trying to repent. I'm coming to service of worship. I'm not taking the supper. You can't do that. That's, that's suspending yourself from the supper, and you don't have that authority. Only the session can do that. So what do you do? Well, you repent. <laughs> you have no other option but to repent. Lord, I've blown it all week long. Every day I've struggled with this sin. I turn from it, and my purpose is to walk with you in new obedience. Please give me the grace to do that as I partake of this meal. That's repentance. Or I'm at odds with him. I'm not taking the supper. No. You reconcile with him. That's what you have to do. You have no other option. Isn't that wonderful? You have to repent. And if you take the supper four times a year, oh, I can kind of slough off this week. If you take the supper every week, you've got to repent every week. Well, it should be every day, but we've only gotten through six out of 11. Ah, it's, oh well, oh well. We talked about the major stuff, I guess. Any final questions? Jonathan? That point you just said is really interesting. I've never thought about it, that we don't have the option to let the supper pass. No. Because growing up, I mean, there were a number of occasions when I would not take the supper feeling like I had committed too great of a sin that week or I wasn't in the right place spiritually. If you're weak or doubting of your salvation in Christ, that's when you need it most. So thankfully, you don't have that authority, yeah. right? And if I did everything on how I feel, up, down, in the middle, boy, my Christian life would be a confused mess. It's steady. The Lord says, this sacrament is for you to strengthen your graces, right? It is. Except that you have to repent. Well, <laughs> because, because if we do take it without the inward faith and repentance, then there is an element of Yes, there is, and I would call it at that point chastisement. The Lord loves you, and that won't change, but he will chastise you. He'll spank you spiritually, and it won't be pleasant. Uh, or, uh, Mary Alice? Oh, it is. It is absolutely amazing. It is. That when I come to that table, he welcomes me because I feel sometimes I've achieved this to my sin. No, join the club. Yeah. And the thing that my father says, Hello, woman, you know, I love you. Come here. Let me pour out my joy. That's right. That's right. Yeah, well said. With that, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love. And for the sacraments by which you confirm to us that everlasting and unwavering love, supremely demonstrated at the cross of Christ, please prepare us now for worship where we ascribe to you that worth that is due to your great name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.